Well, for many people today, this is Super Bowl Sunday. However, we don't think of it that way. We think this is the day that the Lord has made, and Sunday is a day to worship. So this is really the Lord's Day. Uh, but for many who think it is uh, more of a Super Bowl Sunday than a worship day, there's an amazing number of things that uh, people record about this day in terms of uh, putting on the Super Bowl. I don't know if you know this, but for every 30 seconds that a particular firm buys a spot on Super Bowl Sunday at, at that football game, it costs them $4 million. Um, when the game first started, the price tag for a 30-second spot was, was $42,000. Um, I think one of the most expensive commercials ever made was uh, Britney Spears at the Joy of Pepsi for $7.53 million. Other things interesting, kind of trivia about uh, Super Bowl Sunday is it's the biggest American Grill Day next to July 4th. They estimate that 14 billion hamburgers will be eaten on uh, this particular day. And if you happen to be at the game, there will be 5,000 hot dogs served. Uh, there's all kinds of things that happen this day. In fact, they, they've said in terms of how many calories people eat just with snack food, uh, it doubles on this day. Now, actually, it's a lot more than I thought people ate as far as snacks on any particular day. But they say people will consume 12,000 calories uh, on Super Bowl Sunday eating just snack food. And in case you're not into hamburgers or hot dogs, you're more, you're more of a wing type of person, they estimate that 1.23 billion wings will be eaten on, on uh, Super Bowl Sunday. Now, aren't you glad you came to church? <laughs> You found all this useful information. Now, if anything could be trivia, that is trivia. And the thing we want to announce very clearly, there's nothing in this book that's trivial, right? Because it really makes a difference. The other thing that was kind of interesting is I was uh, just reading some things related to Super Bowl Sunday, as, as it's been now known. In fact, you know, it wasn't always Super Bowl Sunday. It used to be the AFL-NFL Championship Sunday. But that was too long to say, so they made Super Bowl Sunday after the fourth game. Uh, Oh, oh, by the way, too, they, they do make kind of a lot of money. The first game, I think it was January 15, 1967, and the winning team got $15,000. Now they get $92,000, even if they don't get in the game. So it's a big business. The other thing I, I read about is that it's also one of the biggest gambling days of the entire year. In fact, uh, people will, will put down money on everything related to Super Bowl Sunday. They'll, they'll put it on not only who wins the game, the Seahawks or the uh, New England Patriots, but they'll also put down money about who wins the coin toss. And not only who wins the coin toss in terms of which team, they'll put money on it to determine whether that the winning toss is a, is a tails or a head. They'll, they'll put money on what the temperature is going to be at kickoff. Will it be 68 degrees, uh, give a minus one or two degrees, uh, above or below? I mean, they... they are gambling about everything related to this game. Now, the sad thing about that is that, reading some of the reports, is that those who help or try to help people who are compulsive gamblers, they say this is the, the worst day of the year for people to fall back into a lifestyle of gambling. So Super Bowl Sunday, which can be a fun day of people just enjoying, if not the game, the commercials, or just being around, having an excuse to have a party or a chance to eat with friends or family, it can be a very hurtful, damaging day because what is encouraged on this particular event. But as we think of all those things that can be trivial or hurtful, 
But we need to again announce that what God tells us is always that which will lift our life rather than put it down. So if you have your Bibles, turn it in the book of Revelation, the last book of the Bible, and turn to the first chapter, and, and we're going we're gonna to start off where we left off last Sunday. Last Sunday we had, if you were here with us, we had a 40-minute uh, introduction and a 5-minute message, and we kind of went through verses 1 through 6 rather rapidly, but it was pretty straightforwardly. And, and now we're picking up in verse 7, and as we begin this, you might have looked at my outline this morning, and you recognize, what a creative title, title, who, where, how, what. And, and when a pastor does that on their, their um, outline, you know they couldn't think of a creative title. So that's what they put down there. But actually what I did that is, is I wanted to, again, illustrate that is, is trying to understand this book. And I had a conversation with one of uh, our people in the, in, the, um, in the fellowship time after. They said, how long are you going to be in the book of Revelation? I said, well, I haven't totally decided. Well, hoping you're a long time because I don't understand it. Well, that's what God wants us to do. He wants us to understand this book. Theologians call this the perspicuity of Scripture, which is a fancy word to say God gave us this book so that we could understand it, the clarity of Scripture. Okay? Um, but the way you understand the Bible is to ask questions of the Bible, you know, the who, what, where, when, why, how questions. And so we're going we're gonna to break this book up with those kind of questions, but this morning we're going to use it as an outline to determine what are some things God wants us to see this morning. And so it's going to be the, the who and the where and the how and the what. But before we do that, I wanted to give somewhat a comparison between the first book and the last book. Uh, and if you are into reading, a lot of times the first chapter is super important and the last chapter is super important. If you can get those two chapters down, you can kind of um, wade through the middle and you'll kind of get the main idea. Well, the first book in God's Word is the book of Genesis and the work of the the word Genesis means beginning or beginnings. And so what we have here is the beginning of God's program, and the revelation is the end or the completion of it. And so I think it's uh, Dr. McGee, he, he uh, threw out these. I changed some of the wording a little bit. But this is how he says how it began and how it's going to end or complete. In the beginning, uh, darkness was called night. And the interesting thing in Revelation, it says there will be no night in heaven. So darkness will be obliterated, and there will be only the shining glory of God. And it's also uh, found in Genesis that the waters were called seas, or the seas. In Revelation, it says there will be no more seas. And I put this in because my, my son, Matt, is an avid surfer. And I like to tell him, well, when you get to heaven, you're not going to be able to surf. You better get another hot... No. Uh, the idea that probably sees, it could be literally there is actually no water base in some of the places that, that we would imagine them to be. Or it could simply mean that seas is symbolic of, of things that have happened catastrophically. A lot of, lot of fear was experienced when people went on the seas because they, they could recognize they could not control the ocean. There will be no place where things are out of control. In Genesis, there's the entrance of sin. And in Revelation, there is the exit of sin. In Genesis, the curse was pronounced as we rebelled against God. In the book of Revelation, the curse will be totally removed. There will be a new heaven and a new earth. In the book of Genesis, death enters. And in Revelation, there will be no more death. There will be no more separation between us and God at any level. We'll be completely connected. In the book of Genesis, Satan is let loose. He is allowed to have free reign under God's control. But in Revelation, Satan will be put in prison, really, forever. And then in Genesis, 
the, the bad news is sorrow and sufferings began. And let's just realize that, that we have no um, uh, somehow Pollyannish view that if you become a Christian, you'll, there'll be no more trials, there'll be no more pain, there'll be no more tears. But there is going to come a time where there will be no more trials and no more tears and no more pain because sorrow and suffering will end in God's plan. So that's the beginning and that's the end. But let's, let's look at some things God wants us to remember as we begin this book. And basically some who, where, how, and what. And um, let's just kind of run into it this morning. Remember this, who is coming. And we've already kind of talked about that, but he wants to remind us who is coming. So in Revelation chapter 1, verse 7, we have these words from John recorded for us. Behold, he, he is coming with the clouds, and every eye will see him, and even those who pierced him, and all the tribes of the earth will mourn over him. So it is to be. Amen. And we know that he is in reference to the Son of God, Jesus, because in verse 5 it said, To him who loves us and released us from our sins by his blood, obviously a reference to the Son of God, God the Son. And I, I emphasize this very plainly because God wants us to know the one who's coming is not the one who we saw when he came the first time. Because in verse 8 it says, I am the Alpha and the Omega, says the Lord God, who is and who was and who is to come, the how mighty? The Almighty. And, and so it, it's, it's, I hope you get the passion of this as, as John begins his writing here. He says, Behold. And behold is a, is a common phrase in the book of Revelation. In fact, there's a number of phrases and words that are used uh, numerous times to, to, for emphasis. And the word behold is used about 30 times in the book of Revelation. And so that must be significant. And really the word behold has the idea of is be on the alert, be awake, notice this, don't miss it. And really when you think about the reason we should not miss it, because who is coming? It's Jesus is coming. The, the one who is infinite and eternal and is almighty. This is not the meek and mild Jesus who, who came and, and people uh, mocked him because how, how could this little peasant from a town like Nazareth, uh, be almighty God. He's coming in his glory and majesty. Now, w- whether you're a, a Super Bowl fan or not, whether you're going to tune in the game or not, probably all of us have been in situations, I don't care whether it's a, a particular movie or a program or maybe a certain event, maybe you've been to the Rose Parade or whatever like that, and all of a sudden you, you got distracted, had to go someplace else, maybe you had to get one of those 12,000 calorie snacks you, that everybody else was eating, whatever it might have been, and you come back, and before you come back, you hear the roar of the crowd. You hear be excited. You go, what happened? What happened? I missed it. I missed it. And before you had the rewind button on your TV, you know, if you missed the play, you missed it. And if you're there live, unless they had it on this, some kind of jumbo screen or what it might be, if you missed the, the, the home run or the touchdown or, or the, the, the best uh, uh, parade uh, event, or might be a certain type of float, whatever it might be, award-winning float, you missed it. And what are you saying here? Behold, do not miss this. He is coming. And who is he that is coming? The one is the Alpha and the Omega. The one that everyone's going to see when he comes and touches here on earth. The one who is infinite and eternal and almighty. Now, one says no one's going to miss it when he comes the second time, when he lands here on earth, because every eye will see him. But I, I, I want to emphasize this. Some people will miss 
the significance that it could have been for them. Because for some, he's coming to liberate them. And for others, he's coming to pronounce judgment. And so he's throwing not only a proclamation, but a warning. Behold, he is coming. Do not miss it. And and we can all feel that. There's, There's many things in life that it doesn't matter whether we miss it. You could have missed the introduction of this message and it wouldn't have mattered. You don't care how many hot dogs are going to be eaten at the, at, the, at the game in Arizona. And I got a lot more of those. I can tell you how many um, chips are going to be sold and how much guacamole is going to be and how many pounds of, 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 of <laughs> avocados you need to make that. But I'll, I will um, somehow spare you that detail, all right? But those are things that are <laughs> might be kind of interesting to hear, but you don't need that, do you? But we don't want to miss his coming. That's who is coming. Secondly, where and to whom is he revealing the message? And in verses 9 through 11, we get that announcement. I, John, your brother and fellow partaker in the tribulation. He speaks to himself in the first person and the third person. I, John, your brother. And kingdom and perseverance, which are in Jesus, was on the island called Patmos because of the word of God and the testimony of Jesus. I was in the spirit on the Lord's day, and I heard behind me a loud voice like the sound of a trumpet saying, Write in a book what you see, and send it to the seven churches, to Ephesus and to Smyrna and to Pergamum and to Thyatira and to Sardis and to Philadelphia and to Laodicea. And in that particular section, in verses 9 through 11, he answers the simple question, where and to whom? Where is he sending this message and to whom is he sending it to? Well, it's pretty clear he's sending it to one of his disciples, one of his apostles. He's sending it to John. And what's significant for us to remember about John is that that John was one of the beloved disciples. In fact, he was considered the one closest to Jesus on on a human level. But also we need to recognize that he probably was the only one left at this time. Everyone else had been martyred for their faith. And and so in the sense of those he was closest to, he is all alone. And so God sends that message to the last of the twelve. But we need to recognize that that he is not somehow in an ivory tower. And and sometimes that's the perception of people who are... uh, you know, pastors or clergy that, you know, there's kind of some up here in the clouds, you know, and everybody else is here living the real life and they have no idea what's going on and the struggles of, of everyday person. But Paul says, I mean, John says, look at, look at, I'm your brother in persecution and in tribulation. I, I'm, I'm with you. I'm participating. In fact, actually he says, I, he could have said this, I, I'm experiencing it to a larger degree than any of you. Because he was writing to the seven churches. And the word seven throughout the Bible, and particularly in the book of Revelation, has the idea of completeness. And, and so the seven has the idea of this is representative of all the churches. But he, he's writing to these churches who are basically in Asia Minor or in Turkey. Well, that's not where he's at. He, he's in a little island called Patmos, which is... Is, is not a place that you probably look up and say, I want to I go on a cruise there, right? I've never seen it as a, you know, there, there are people who go to the, uh, the second Holy Land. You got Israel and you go to Turkey. But 
um, if they go to Patmos, it's just for a short period of time. Bill's had the opportunity to be there. And, and uh, you know, it's, it's marvelous to see the place where it was written, but it's, it's not a place you'd probably vacation there for any length of time. Because it's basically a volcanic rock island. It's a very small island, five to six miles wide, ten miles in length. And it's 40 miles off the shore from Miletus. So, you, so it's a prison in which you don't have to have walls because where are you going to go? You're not going to take a leisurely swim for 40 miles back to the mainland. And, and here you have a man who, who is who's not only there in prison, but he's probably doing hard labor uh, under, uh, uh, next to the whip of a Roman soldier. And he probably does not have sufficient clothing or food. And, and, and he's not particularly having the, the greatest accommodations for a good night's sleep. And so he's working hard, can't sleep, doesn't have enough food, doesn't have enough clothing to keep him warm. And, and he, he's speaking about the hope that is to come to others who are going through times of, of great turmoil. Because the, the people of God are, are, are now persecuted because, simply because of their faith. In fact, that's why John says, that's why I'm on the island. It isn't because I've done any criminal activity. It's because I was faithful to the testimony of the, of the Word of God. And, and just as you are, you need to recognize that even in the midst of everything that goes on, God is still with us, and He's coming again. And so sometimes when we go through times like that, when we feel like we're on the opposite side of the good life because of a variety of circumstances, we need to recognize that the one who's coming again is going to be coming for us. And the Almighty One will allow us to have strength to go through whatever comes our way. And our life groups this week, part of the passages we'll look at is just that ability to not only look about relief in the future, but... God's presence in the, in the present. So we want to know who is coming. The, the Almighty One, the Infinite, Eternal One, the Son of God. And behold, don't miss it. Secondly, that on the island of, of, of Patmos, John is not an ivory tower, but experiencing the, the challenge of life and sending out a message of hope to all the churches. And then thirdly, and this is where I want to spend most of our time this morning, is... is we ask, answer ourselves the question, well, how should he be seen, the one who is coming? And we've had some descriptive terms already, the Alpha and the Omega, and, and the one who is and was and is to come. But, but how should I visualize this one? And we touched on a couple of them last Sunday, but we're going to see the, the vision in its entirety this morning. And, and, and really, this is not a picture of Jesus in the future. This is a picture of Jesus right now. So let's look at it. And, and what I want you to do, and it's interesting, you know, this book has a lot of pages and a lot of words in it, but doesn't have a whole lot of what in it. Doesn't have a whole lot of pictures in it. Now, they used to put a few pictures of what they thought Jesus looked like, or they, at least they thought they wanted Jesus to look like. Um, and some um, children's Bibles, they might put a few more pictures in there. But most of our Bibles here don't have a lot of pictures, right? And it's interesting, this is, this is a revelation to John that was basically a picture. And, I mean, he could have, I guess. He could have drawn it, right? And then in our Bibles now, instead of having the words, we could have had a picture of this, correct? But God didn't do it that way. He says, I gave you a picture, now I want to take, have you take that picture and I want you to put it into words. 
Now, we could try to talk about why God did it that way, but he did it that way for a reason. And, and it might be the reason he wants us to use our imagination, the picture in our mind, the majesty of these symbols, and not limit it to somebody else's representation of it. Well, what is the picture? And picture this somehow in your heart and in your mind. You want to picture Jesus, and we don't know what he looked like physically, but we want to picture Jesus with certain things now. Verse 12. Then I turned to see the voice that was speaking with me, and having turned, I saw seven golden lampstands, and in the middle of the lampstand, I saw one like a son of man. So someone in human form was there, and in the midst of that person standing, there was around him seven lampstands, and they were golden. Now, what should that picture? Well, again, we just want to break these symbols down very simply. And we know in Revelation 1, verse 20, what these lampstands represent. We don't have to guess about that. These lampstands represent who? Churches. These are churches. And um, when we get to verse 20, you'll, you'll see what we just said. So these are churches. And what are churches to do? They're, they're to give what kind of thing into, into a dark world? They're supposed to give what? Light. And in the middle of these instruments of light that are churches, there is the one who actually is the what? The light. And being in the center is significant because Jesus is the one who's supposed to be in the center of the church. Isn't that true? That, I mean, we have different responsibilities in the church, but who's supposed to be the head of the church? Jesus. In Colossians 1, it says that, that he is the firstborn. It says he is, he is in that place that he should have first place in what everything so he he gets this initial picture of the one son of the man in the midst of seven golden lampstands which represent the churches that are to give out light and the one who is the light uh john 8 12 he is the light of the world is to be at the center of all that god is doing in the world and what god is doing in the world is through his churches to get the light out about the reality of the son of god so you kind of seize the mission of this one who comes. is coming again to, to be at the center of that which gives out the light of God to others. And then it goes on in verse 13. It says this. And in the middle of the lampstand I saw one like a son of man, clothed in a robe, reaching to the feet, and girded across his chest with a golden sash. And you say, okay, that's, that's what he was wearing. That was, I guess, fashionable in that day to wear. But it wasn't necessarily just fashionable in that day for people to wear a a long flowing robe. In fact, only a few people had the opportunity to do that. And we could look in some of the passages in the Old Testament that, that really only royalty had tunics that reached to the ground. I mean, you had shorter tunics for the, the normal people or regular people, but the longer ones demonstrated kingship or, or rulership. But even more so, this picture, and this would show Jesus as, in his role as being king, but probably more significantly, what this picture does is it shows Jesus in his role as priest. And not just priest, but high priest. The high priest would wear a long flowing robe and then he would be girded with a golden sash or belt. So now we see Jesus, not only the one who is at the center of the church, to, 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 to have light uh, uh, come from the churches. But he's the one who is the high priest for the churches. He's our high priest. If you have your Bibles, you can turn quick and look at Hebrews. In Hebrews chapter 2, what does it mean that Jesus is our high priest? In verse 17 and 18 in chapter 2, it says this. 
Therefore he, Jesus, had to be made like his brethren in all things, yet he had to become a man, so that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest in things pertaining to God and to make propitiation for the sins of the world. If Jesus had not become a man, he could not have been a sacrifice for our sins. But then in verse 18 it says this, For since he himself was tempted in that which he has suffered, and you could use the word tried, the, the, the word for trial and temptation is the same, for since he himself was tried under trials in that which he has suffered, he is able to come to the aid of those who are tempted who are tried. Now, when you go to someone in need, or someone comes to you when you're in need, above all else, you want them to understand what you're what? What you're going through, what, what, what you need. And, and see, Jesus is our high priest. Not only is he is proficient to be able to, to represent us between us and God, God the Father, he is the one who has been tried or tempted in all things that we have so that he can understand what we're going through. In fact, just turning over a page, in Ephesians 4.15, it, it says the same thing. It says that, uh, starting in verse 14, Since then we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens, Jesus, the Son of God. Let's hold fast our confession. For we do not have a high priest who cannot sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who has been tempted in all things as we are, yet without sin. And then he goes on and says this in verse 16, Therefore, let us draw near with confidence to the throne of grace, that we may receive mercy and may find grace to help in time of need. Now, there was a popular phrase used by a significant uh, politician, and he said, well, I, I feel your what? I feel your pain. Well, um, I, I want to be people to be able to empathize and sympathize with my pain, but beyond people empathizing or feeling my pain, I want to find someone who can actually what? Help me, Right? I mean, I mean I, it's nice that people can connect and relate and be there, and, and that is a help just in, in that. But beyond that, I want someone who can deal with my pain, right? None of us go to a physician or a doctor and say, I just want you to, to know that I have pain here, right? You don't, you don't want him just to know you got pain or she didn't know you had pain. You want them to do what with that pain? Deal with it, right? And that's what Jesus is. So again, how should he be seen when he comes again? See him in his glory as the center of the church, the one who is the dispenser of light to this world. To see him as the one who is the high priest, dressed in the, in the flowing robe and the golden sash, so that he is the one who can sympathize and be that grace in time of need. But the picture goes on back in Revelation. Then in Revelation chapter 1, verse 14, we, we have this image, and we talked about this briefly last week. His head... And his hair were white like white wool, like snow, and his, and his eyes were like a flame of fire. The white uh, uh, hair can portray wisdom, uh, experience, but it's also a symbol of purity. He's the pure one. The Bible says in Isaiah chapter 1, verse 18, that though our, our sins be as, as, as red and crimson, they'll be washed as white as snow. But then the idea of the burning flames of, of uh, the fire, that the eyes look. And we talked about that. That, that. that God is the one who can give us that look. And when he gives us that look, you remember the look your parents gave you when you were out of line? You know, if you've ever been a teacher, the look that you give a student that's out of line. If you're a coach, when they're running the wrong play, you give the look. And, man, they just stop. 
That's the will. But I want to give you a reference to it. In Hebrews chapter 4, verse 13, we, um, we have these words about the gaze of the living one. And there is no creature hidden from his sight, but all things are open and laid bare to the eyes of him with whom we have to do. So as we think about the one who's coming, he, he, he's the one who has the look and look at it with those penetrating eyes, but he is the one who sees all. And it's so easy for us to kind of go through life thinking that sometimes we get away with things, that, that no one saw it, no one noticed. But God notices. And the good news, he notices not only the bad things we do, but the what? The good things that we do. And, and when you feel that no one's appreciating what you're doing, recognize God sees that. Nothing is left that he does not see, that he does not notice, that he is not aware. And then he goes on, and, and, um, and this is one that this last week, uh, one of my small groups, they said, will you explain this? I've been reading ahead. I said, no, you have to wait till Sunday. Uh, but anyway, it was um, in verse uh, 15, it says, his feet were like burnished bronze. And I'm reading out the New American Standard. Now, what in the world does that mean? And some of these symbols, uh, they're not as easy to, to try to, to surface uh, to our understanding. But, but for my reading this past week, one, I wanted to recognize that in the tabernacle you had the, the bronze altar. So as people came into the presence of God who was going to be uh, the one who would judge their sin and deal with their sin, this is the place where they became clean. But I also read that, that in those days that a king, when the subject would come to him, that he'd be sitting on an elevated throne and when they would bow at his presence, uh, they would be right eye level with his what? His feet. And when we think about when Jesus comes again, the Bible says in Philippians chapter 2 that when he comes again, that every knee will bow and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is what? Is Lord. And, and so this is a symbol that, that he is the one who comes, the one who who died for our sins, who rose again, who, who can sympathize with our, with our trials and our temptations and can be grace in time of need. He's also the one who will be the judge of people's sins. And they will bow before him, some eagerly and some in shame. And they'll be face to face with the one who really is at his altar who will be accountable. And then again, this, this picture that that John saw that does not draw it, but writes about it. He goes on and says this, when it has been made to glow in the first, these are the shoes, and he goes, and his voice was like the sound of many waters. So here is, here is a picture that has a sound card to it, that when we see Jesus, we, we don't see Jesus speaking softly, do we? We see Jesus speaking with what kind of a voice? A loud voice. Now, uh, I was saying in the first service, yeah, there's, there's still a number of things on my wish list that I'd like to do, or like to go, or like to experience. Now, the, the older I get, they don't call that a wish list anymore. They call it a what? A bucket list. You, you didn't take a whole lot of time to figure that one out, you know. But anyway, you know, I, I, you know, I have some bucket lists, and there's some things that many of you probably have already experienced. But I, I'd like to go to Niagara Falls sometime. How have you been to Niagara Falls? How many have had an opportunity to go there? You know, from those who have been there, it's just, I'm just, it's just amazing, isn't it? I mean, the sights and the, and the sounds and the smells and the, and the, the, this, the moisture coming and, and spraying you. 
But what I hear often is that when you're there, you're just overwhelmed by the what? The sound. The sound of many waters cascading from one elevation to another. And it's almost deafening. And even in the sense of that sound, which you're, you're just amazed at, you, you recognize that, that that is something that it, it is beyond your control. It's powerful. And so when Jesus comes, he's not going to whisper. He's going to speak with the voice of authority. Just one cross-reference, Psalm chapter 29, uh, Psalm chapter, Psalm 29, verses 3 and 4. We have these words. The voice of the Lord is upon the waters. The God of glory thunders. The Lord is over many waters. The voice of the Lord is powerful. The voice of the Lord is majestic. You know, it wasn't a Super Bowl commercial, but I think all of us remember that classic commercial. When E.F. Hutton speaks, everyone what? Listens. And so as we think about the one who's coming, everyone's going to listen this time. Verse 16 says, in his right hand, he held seven stars. Now, if you've read ahead in verse 20, we don't have to guess what the seven stars are. It says the seven stars are the stars are the angels and the lampstands are the churches. And so as he's talking about here, we have a picture as he comes in the in the white robe and the, the bronzed glowing shoes and the white hair and the, uh, the lampstand surrounding him with a loud voice and all that we visualize. In his right hand, there are seven stars. And these seven stars are angels to the churches. Some of you are familiar with this, but there's a big debate going on. Well, what, what do you mean by angels? Are you talking about some heavenly beings that, that are, are somehow assigned particular churches? And there were seven churches, seven angels, so probably each church had an angel, a heavenly messenger that was to be their guardian angel for that church? Well, it's possible, uh, but most don't take it that way as they look at this. The word, the word angel in our, in our English Bibles is not a translated word. It's what's called a transliterated word. The word for angels in the Greek is, is angels or angelos. So it says it sounds the same because it is the same. So they didn't translate it. If they were to translate angel, they would have said messenger. Because that's what an angel was in those days. That's what the word meant. And so really the issue here is, is, is this a heavenly angel or messenger or is a what? Earthly messenger. So often people look at this, and I would, I, I would tend to agree with them, that this is, this is speaking not to heavenly beings but to earthly beings. And since they're connected to the churches, he's probably talking about pastors. So I just want to let you know, when, when you're not sure what to call me, you, you can call me Angel Mike, or actually, I, I, you can call me a star. You can call me a rock star if you want. You, you know, I'm a, you know, well, probably not. But anyway, but as I've said to you before, really, you know, I'm not a star or an angel in the sense of how we normally think of those words. I'm just a messenger boy. Because that's, that's what the angels primarily were to do, is to, to give out God's message, to be at his bidding. And so when you think about that, that symbol of looking at Jesus with the seven stars, he is the one who's in control of, of some of the primary leaders in a church, if not the primary leader in a church. Which means basically pastors are never allowed to do whatever they want because we're only allowed to do what God wants. We're under his control, under his direction. 
We can call it a a great privilege, but it's not something to be proud about because he's the one in charge. He's the one who should give direction. He is the one who leads the church. He's the leader. And then finally, you you have, well, two more. He is the one in verse 16. And out of his mouth came a sharp two-edged sword. And so this picture of Jesus is is somewhat bizarre in terms of all the symbols. But out of his mouth come the authoritative expression of God to people. Hebrews 4.12 says, For the the word of God is living and active and sharper than any two-edged sword. It's able to judge the thoughts and intentions of the heart. And even if it was possible to, to divide between soul and spirit. And so he is the one who speaks not only authoritatively with that loud voice, but he speaks the truth. What is truth? Thy word is truth. And then finally, he's the one who is like the sun shining in its strength. And so we see the one who, in Malachi, is that he's the son of righteousness and the sun which gives not only light but heat and warmth. He, he is the one who is the brightest of all. So what we see in terms of Revelation beginning to unveil itself is we see this majestic picture of who Jesus is. And it touches down where we live. So that's who is coming and where and to whom is it being revealed to and how should it be seen. And find real quickly, how or what should be our response? Look at This is verses 17 through 20. I'll read the section and just make a couple observations. When I saw him, this is John speaking of Jesus, I fell at his feet like a dead man. He was overwhelmed in the presence of of the Almighty God. And and this this almost shocking reaction provoked a reaction from Jesus. And he placed his right hand on me, just comforting me, said, Do not be afraid. I am the first and the last and the living one, and I was dead, and behold, I am alive forevermore, and I have the keys of death and of Hades. I, I'm the one who who's really can, can control life and death, those who are, are, are brought to separation from God and those who uh, experience uh, judgment. Therefore, write the things which you have seen and the things which are and the things which will take place after these things. As for the mystery of the seven stars, which you saw in my right hand, and the seven golden lampstands, the seven stars are the angels of the seven churches, and the seven lampstands are the great are the uh, are the seven churches. So what what's the response? Well, the first response, the natural response of John is he he felt like a dead man. He was so overwhelmed, he just almost died in front of Jesus. Just was motionless. And, 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 and God wants our reverence. He wants us to give him godly fear. But he said, no, I don't want you to be afraid of me or what is to come. And isn't that a great challenge for all of us as we face the unknown, which is whatever happens tomorrow or the next day? If, if we know that God goes with us, what do we have to be afraid of? Because the God who goes with us is almighty and all that was pictured in the vision to Jesus, of Jesus to him. The Bible says that God has not given us a spirit of fear or of timidity, but of power and love and a sound mind. So, so the message of this as we go through the book is, do not be afraid what happens next. And then secondly, recognize that we can know the one who was and is and will be. 
the one that's always been, the one who is now with us and will be there in the future. Let's pray. Father, we want to get it. We want to get who you are, what you're doing, what you have done, and what, will you, what you will do. But our response in terms of facing life's challenges is that we don't want to go through life with fear. We want to be fearless because we're in your hands. And Father, be anyone here this morning that doesn't know you, might they recognize the only way to deal with life in its fullness is to know the one who made us and died for us. Might we all put our trust and confidence and lives in your hands. And we ask this in Christ's name. Amen. As we conclude our time together this morning,